Hi there, and welcome to our knowledge episode on pulmonary embolism. My name is Tom Mason. I'm a respiratory registrar. And with me today, I've got Dr. Nicola Smallcombe, who's another respiratory registrar in London. Hi, Nikki. Hi. Uh, so today we're going to discuss a PE scenario similar to, to that which you might encounter in interview. PE, obviously, one of the, one of the topics which could well come up. Um, so we'll get started with the scenario. So you are a respiratory registrar. You're asked to see a 41-year-old lady presenting to A&E Resus with chest pain and shortness of breath. Please explain how would you assess and manage this patient? So Nikki, how would you how do you approach this situation, do you think? So first of all, obviously I'd want to get a set of observations. Um and going through the patient because we've been told that she's acutely unwell yeah um, we're not entirely sure exactly and um, what's going on just that she's got shortness of breath and the chest pain so we are already thinking about pulmonary embolus so i'd want to say that i'd go and assess her quickly and then do a brief sort of overview that she was safe essentially before i took a, a short history from her and i'd want to just taking a brief history think about how long she's had these symptoms so how long she had the chest pain shortness of breath and when did they come on thinking about PE obviously has there been any syncope or pre-syncopal episodes or anything sort of similar to that any sort of infective symptoms that she's had or anything like this before and then thinking about her personal history of BTE so she had any previous BTE or is there any family history what sort of past medical history has she got any regular medications um, and any bleeding risks just thinking that you know things down the line if we're needing to think about thrombolysis etc and then of course sort of smoking status and then quite quickly just sort of reiterating that we'd move on to like an A to E assessment. Yeah, great. So in this scenario, we find out that she's been unwell for about a week previously with a with a viral illness, hasn't been well at all, doesn't have any family or personal history of VTE. I find out that she's on the oral contraceptive pill, but no other past medical history, no particular bleeding risks. And we're given observations, which are oxygen saturations of 92% on air, heart rate of 115, and a blood pressure of 102 over 75. So given, given that story and that observations, and just to characterise the history a little bit further, it turns out it's a pleuritic chest pain, quite sudden onset and associated with shortness of breath. So we've got that history and those observations. Obviously, it's leading us down down the route of a PE diagnosis. Would you have any differentials in mind? I think I'd also just be thinking about like a pneumothorax because obviously that can cause the pain and the shortness of breath. Uh, so quite quickly wanted to get a chest X-ray. And then other things you could mention is like pneumonia, although it seems less likely given sort of the acuity, but she has been unwell and she could have had a bacterial pneumonia on top of her viral illness. And so those would be the sort of main things, but we'd still be very much leaning towards PE. I'm wanting to make it clear to the interviewers that you, I recognise that she's unwell and I want her in a monitored environment, mm. ideally sort of resus with those sort of observations. Yeah. And how would you begin to investigate and then, and then manage this patient as well? So ensuring that she's fully monitored, want to get an ECG and seeing obviously if it's just sinus tacky, if there's any evidence of sort of right heart strain on there. 
making sure we've got a chest x-ray, which we've already said, and a full set of bloods, particularly making sure that we send off a troponin, just because that can be useful when we're thinking about PE in terms of categorizing it. And we could say that we'll also send off a BMP and a D-dimer is also um, useful. Obviously, if you're not sure initially, it's not always good to be sending off the TROP and D-dimer at the same time. So it might not be something, you might the TROP might be something that you add on later. I think that's the main sort of things. And getting a CTPA, mm. but essentially, I mean, yeah. X-ray before the CTPA, but yeah, getting the CTPA book so we can get some further elucidation of what's going on. Yeah, great. And given you know a reasonably convincing sounding history, would you would you be wanting to give any treatment before the CTPA in in a case like this? Do you think? Yeah, essentially, I think it depends. It depends in the delays in getting the scan. I think, and I think realistically, I think a lot of us probably work some DGHs where you don't always get the stand scans immediately and they're not reported immediately. So I think you can say if you've, the patient's high risk and you know there's no evidence when you've done the chest x-ray that there's a pneumothorax or anything and P is your most likely diagnosis and they're like this, I don't think it's unreasonable to give a treatment dose of low molecular weight heparin. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think if you have a high clinical suspicion of PE and there's no significant bleeding risks, then I think that treating empirically is is the right thing to do in in most cases. I think it would be useful to get a pregnancy test as well, especially if you're going to, you know, uh, get a CTPA. Fine. So any any other investigations you'd want in the the meantime? And an ABG, I think, would also be useful just to quantify, because we know that she's hypoxic, Mm. uh, almost certainly going to be a type 1 respiratory failure, but I think given her age and how well she is useful. Yeah, so so we get an ABG. It shows that she is hypoxic with a PO2 of 7.5 on air, um, but normal pH, normal CO2, normal lactate. So obviously we'd want to give her oxygen to maintain SATs 88 to 94% to 98%. We managed to get the CTPA and the radiologist actually calls you very quickly and says there's extensive bilateral pulmonary emboli, including a large saddle embolus and some evidence of white heart strain on the CT. The bloods you get back about this time, so the D-dimer is raised, and the troponin is mildly elevated at 35 as well. So with you know these investigation results in mind, how would you be thinking about trying to risk stratify this, this patient to potentially influence their management? So I think the ESCP guidelines, essentially what we all sort of use now, and I think it's just really, it, there's a very useful flow chart that they describe as sort of high risk, intermediate high risk, intermediate low risk and low risk. Mm. So I would always describe if, if you have this sort of interview scenario um, using that sort of terminology because it just makes things a lot easier. Yeah. Obviously with this paper, we know that they've got a positive trop and they've also got this evidence of right heart strain, which is putting them in sort of an intermediate high risk character category. And certainly, obviously, they're not meeting the criteria for thrombolysis currently, but certainly this is not someone that you want to be stuck in a side room on a Jerry's ward, for example. You, mm-hmm. you know, they need to be an AMU in a monitored bed in a monitored environment with the right people like CCOT, etc., aware of the fact that they're high risk of becoming unstable. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. It might be worthwhile just briefly recapping the risk stratification according to the guidelines. So high risk PE, 
is what used to be called massive PE. And that's defined by hemodynamic instability, hypotension, cardiogenic shock, secondary to the PE. So either a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 or requirement for inotropes, vasopressors, or obviously cardiac arrest. So these patients should be thrombolized with full dose systemic thrombolysis, you know, as soon as possible. And the aim of that is to dissolve the clot, achieve reperfusion, and alleviate the acute RV failure, essentially. And RV failure is, of course, what kills people with PE rather than anything else. So high risk are, in a way, quite clear-cut because they have a good evidence base that they should have thrombolysis. These patients in the intermediate high-risk group are slightly more tricky to manage. So these patients are what used to be called submassive PE, but now intermediate high risk. So by definition, they're hemodynamically stable because they're not high risk, but they do have worrying features. So they have evidence of right heart strain, either on CT or echo. And they also have evidence of raised cardiac biomarkers, either raised troponin, raised BNP. And so these patients, although stable at the moment, are at risk of deteriorating and progressing to high-risk PE with hemodynamic instability and cardiogenic shock. And then we have just intermediate low risk, which is hemodynamically stable, and then one of either evidence of right heart strain or, or raised biomarkers, and then low risk, which is none of those features. Another slightly, another slightly separate scoring system, which can sometimes be useful, is the PESI score, which classifies people into one of four groups, which is useful, but people do score highly on it purely by virtue of having cardiac or respiratory comorbidities or cancer, which can you know, push your score up. So if we move on to treatment um, a little bit. What, what would you be your feelings about treating this patient? How would you treat them and where would you treat them? Yeah, so to keep them in a monitored environment and make sure that CCOT or sort of the equivalent, whatever people have got in their hospital are aware, um, I treat them with sort of high dose, sorry, treatment dose and molecular weight heparin. Uh, but also at some point we will switch to sort of a DOAC for this patient, but it won't be in the acute setting. And essentially making sure that if, if available, obviously mostly it's in tertiary centres, but with these sort of patients talking to the PERT team, and if I was in a DGH, I'd be picking up the phone to speak to sort of the PERT team at our sort of referral centre, just to, if there's anything that they would offer in terms of sort of like catheter-directed thrombolysis. Um, yeah. Would be the main things, I think. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. So obviously, we've said these people are intermediate high risk, they're stable at the moment, but are at risk of deteriorating. And the evidence about how to treat them is really not too clear cut at the moment. It's all a little bit complicated. But essentially, you know, thrombolizing these people is not recommended routinely at the moment. So thrombolizing them does reduce their risk of hemodynamic collapse and death from PE, but there's no overall mortality benefit overall in trials so far, because that has come at the cost of increased bleeding risk, particularly hemorrhagic stroke and GI bleeds. So that's why, because of this bleeding risk, there has been increasing interest in recent years in other strategies, such as catheter-directed thrombolysis, 
which is an interventional radiology procedure giving thrombolytic agent directly into the clot in the pulmonary arteries at a lower dose at a slower rate to try to minimize the bleeding risk. Also other IR therapies such as thromboaspiration to physically remove clot. But again, it's all less evidence-based at the moment. And the guidelines do recommend that, you know, they can be considered with a multidisciplinary PERT or PELT team, which, you know, involves respiratory physicians, interventional radiology, critical care, hematology, cardiology. And that can be a, a joint decision about what is the individual best treatment in each case. Obviously, in the interview, you wouldn't want to necessarily get bogged down in the details of that. But um, I think it's definitely good to be aware that, you know, these patients are at risk of deteriorating and that more specialised management might be indicated. ECHO can be useful to try to inform that decision. So obviously the pressures are obviously going to be slightly high acutely anyway with an acute PE, but probably having an RV which is significantly impaired as opposed to just dilated is probably a bad prognostic sign. Otherwise, other, you know, factors which might tip you towards intervening is if they are, you know, very hypoxic on extremely high amounts of FiO2, uh, or if they're extremely tachycardic, or, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very individualized assessment, basically. But the key thing is that they're in, in an appropriate monitored bed, as you said, and that could differ locally, depending on resources and could be a monitored AMU acute medical bed, it could be a CCU, it could be a HDU, and it will, it will very much depend on, on the situation. But the vast, but the, well, the majority of these patients are usually fine with anticoagulation alone, but very important to know that they are at risk of deteriorating. Any other, any other thoughts from your point of view, Nikki? Yeah, no, I think it's that, and I suppose also just thinking about the risk factors that led to her being on having a PE and obviously she's a young woman of childbearing age and sort of the impact that would have going forward when, when if she were to try to get pregnant and counselling sort of surrounding that so sort of things to think about I suppose when you when you're sort of thinking about follow-up specific things to think about. Mm. I think while we're on the on the subject of you know PEs in women of childbearing age pregnancy etc um, I mean I, I know there's often a lot of concern about you know CTPA in, in, in these women. I mean, certainly probably my view and the view of the maternal and obstetric medicine teams and some of the places I've worked has been that, you know, CTPA is the gold standard test for pulmonary embolism. If there, if, you know, there's a high clinical probability that they do have PE, then it's best just to get the CTPA because, you know, VQ scans are often not as available, particularly even in, you know, tertiary centres, they sometimes don't happen every day of the week. You don't want a patient to be waiting for, you know, multiple days to get their investigation. And also the CTPA can give you information about how the right ventricle is coping with the thrombus burden as well. So I think if, if you're clinically suspicious and they're sick, then get a CTPA. Yeah would be my view. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in this case, we can say that they were treated with anticoagulation alone. They slowly improved over the course of you know, 48 to 72 hours. We switched to a DOAC 
and were discharged home. How, how would you want to follow up a patient like this? So I think we'd want them to have a repeat echo in about three to six months and then sort of depending on, on the trust policy in terms of who follows up, either getting you know, respiratory to follow up in three to six months with that. Sometimes it's haematology. It does vary between trusts. But yeah, you want a follow up at about three to six months to assess their, if there's any functional limitation or breathlessness and a repeat echo in this lady's case because she had right heart strain. I think a lot of patients sometimes are breathless post PE and it's sort of the, the key is differentiating that, you know, a common thing is just deconditioning post PE, but differentiating that from the more worrying and sort of CTEP in particular mm. um, and not missing those cases. Obviously there's high mortality associated with CTEP. So we want to make sure we don't miss that in these patients. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, th I, th I think if there's evidence of waste pulmonary pressures plus minus RV dysfunction on the echo then they should have like you say a repeat echo after at least three months to ensure that you know things have recovered if there is any evidence of residual ph at that point then i think they should be referred to one of the pulmonary hypertension centers for evaluation because chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is a is a serious condition which which needs treating the incidence of it is slightly unclear, but probably somewhere between 1% and 5%. So relatively rare, but not insignificant. Yeah. Great. Any other, any other points you wanted to bring up, Nikki? No, I think that's, that's pretty much, I mean, the, the by and large, I think the main thing is just the ESC guidelines just make it so clear and easy to think about now. Yeah, I'd agree. That, yeah, ESC EOS 2019 guidelines are highly recommended. All right. Well, that's a lot, Nikki. Um, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.